you have your Bible this morning, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. We'll be starting in verse 12 today. I feel the need to kind of reintroduce myself after not being here the last couple of weeks. Uh, if you're visiting with us, my name is Bryce. I'm one of the ministers here, and it's a privilege to have you join us this morning. Glad you chose to worship here with us. But uh, I just wanted to say uh, it's great to be back with you all. I always love the opportunity to go and visit family, and thankful for Daniel for bringing two very encouraging messages. Uh, the last week, and I was planning to be here last week for the conclusion of that series. I wasn't planning on being sick, uh, but all that to say, I feel better, and I really missed you all, so I'm glad to be here uh, worshiping with you again today. But uh, I'm not only excited to be worshiping with you, but also excited to begin a new sermon series uh, today, uh, focusing on Jesus' emphasis on the kingdom of heaven throughout the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. And I would love to say that, you know, Daniel and I kind of planned these series the way uh, they worked back to back to the, the, uh, the way we did, but we didn't. It was just kind of a Holy Spirit thing. But uh, what a great way to come out of this little mini series that he did on what is at stake uh, when we turn away from our king to then now through this gospel of Matthew, looking at just who that king is and just what he has done to look at who Jesus is as our king, what his kingdom is like, and, and who we are as citizens of that kingdom. Now, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but as we spend the next few months in this gospel of Matthew, I feel like it needs uh, bearing in mind again that Matthew can be a difficult gospel to understand at times. We like Mark's kind of uh, brevity and, and fast-paced action. Maybe you prefer Luke and his attention to detail and, and uh, the way he just has these kind of exclusive stories and interviews he did, the historicity of all of that. Maybe John, for you, speaks in a special way with his kind of thematic and more theological approach, but Matthew can be different. Matthew is writing to primarily a Jewish audience and uh, it's some of those unique things and unique flavors that he brings into his gospel because of that that makes it my favorite gospel. Uh, we see Jesus to, to show himself to be faithful where Israel did not. Matthew often draws these comparisons between the Old Testament and now what Jesus is doing. Matthew uses different language at times, especially as we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. Other gospel writers will often call it the kingdom of God. There is no difference in what these terms mean out, aside from Matthew uh, using his sensitivity to the Jews who avoid mentioning the divine name of God. And so as we talk about kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, those are the same thing, but Matthew has a different flavor on that because of who he's writing to. But Matthew, because of his Jewish audience, he's also pulling on the long history of who Jesus is anticipated to be. And so we see in his gospel, Jesus being most clearly defined as the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, this prophet and priest and king that had been foretold and expected for generations. But it's that last title that I really want to focus on throughout this series, that title of king. And we'll see this emphasis placed on this title from the very first verse of this book. Now, the book of Matthew opens, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. And don't worry, I'm not going to go back to that genealogy. I think Dave, Daniel and I have kind of wrung as much out of that as we can in the last few weeks. Uh, but all that to say that as we look at this, we see David mentioned from the, very, from the very beginning, being viewed as the great king of Israel, and how Jesus will be given the same title, but in a very different way. 
God's kingdom, the, the kingdom of heaven, doesn't come with palaces and castles, with armies and chariots, with plunder and splendor. No, Jesus introduces the kingdom in much more familiar terms. Jesus will go on to show that the kingdom comes like seed scattered on the ground, like yeast working its way through a lump of dough, like a hidden treasure in a field, like a fishing net. And Jesus uses all of these kind of familiar terms, these, these easy-to-understand terms to show what God's rule and reign is like in our world. In fact, everything of all the things that Jesus taught about, the one topic that he returned to most often, the one he talked about over and over again, was the kingdom of heaven. His very first sermon that we'll focus on this morning was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He would introduce his parables, his favorite way of teaching, with statements like, This is what the kingdom of God is like. Or what should we say that the kingdom of God is like? When someone chose to follow him, they would be described as entering into the kingdom. And so as we spend the next few months focusing on what it means to be citizens of God's kingdom and what that kingdom looks like, I feel like it is most pertinent this morning to start with just the king, who Jesus is. And speaking in terms of kings and kingdoms, can be a bit weird for us in our context. As Americans, we don't have a monarchy. We have a, a democratic republic. And as Americans, we don't have a king. And since in any given really presidential race, roughly half of the people casting their votes are going to be unhappy with who the resulting president is, we're not exactly united under a common ruler most times. But you don't really have that luxury when you have a king. There is no vote, there is no campaign, there's no checks and balances, there's no impeachment process or voting out of office should things go awry. Whether he is a murderous tyrant or a merciful leader, like it or not, the king is the king. One preacher expressed it this way, and this is a phrase I want to remember as we come to this over and over again this morning. When the king comes to town, you get down on your knees. By the nature of his very position, a king deserves reverence and honor and submission. Some kings throughout history have demanded it by threat of violence, that if you want to keep your head, then you will take a knee to me. Other kings deserve it by nature of their benevolent rule, that they don't demand it, but we give it to them anyway. I kind of think of it this way, and I can't guarantee this is the case, what I'm about to say, but I think that by and large, what I'm going to describe in a moment, is kind of universal for all of us. It's an experience that we've all had. Uh, you see, when I was a kid, uh, there were times when we would have guests coming over and we would have to prepare. And there's kind of two different types of guests that come to your house. There's the guests that come to your house and, and they're familiar enough and it's like, well, this is our house and we live here and it looks like we live here. But there are other kinds of guests that other moms, not mine because she's here this morning, but other moms, when the guests would come, would be like, we have to, you know, like, look like we're putting our house on the market, you know? It's got to be spotless. It's going to get the, the white glove treatment. You know, toys are going to be in its place. Every book will be on the shelf. Every surface will be decluttered and, and shined to a polish. The toilets will sparkle. The fans will be dusted. The baseboards will be clean. I'm always thinking, who's going to be looking at our baseboards, you know? But in all of this, you, you see, you know, and, and, and moms in this process have this uncanny ability in, in, a, in a snap to go from like five-star generals to the concierge of a five-star hotel. You know, as soon as that door opens, mom is a different person. Some moms. <laughs> but all of this is to say, when you have guests coming over, you clean the baseboards. 
And when you have a king coming to town, you get down on your knees. And this is what we see from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. Now, I know that Christmas is over, and I know that Daniel did his best a few weeks ago to kill that Christmas spirit good and dead, but I want to go back to the nativity for just a second. Because despite being a very Jewish-oriented gospel, Matthew has some non-Jewish guest stars, if you will, in the beginning that reveal this position and this posture of worship before the king. We see these magi, we often call them wise men, who are over there, are these priestly royals from the nation of Persia. And they travel hundreds of miles to pay homage to a newborn king announced by a star. And I think sometimes we're so familiar with this story, but do you realize how crazy that sounds? And here are these men, wealthy men, influential men, powerful, important men, who set off on a journey because they saw a peculiar burning ball of gas in the sky. And try that tonight with your wife. Hey, honey, uh, I just did some looking at the sky. Uh, some of the fellows and I, we're going to head off for a few weeks to try to follow that star over there. It just sounds crazy. But for them, it was a journey worth taking on faith because it meant the king had come to town. Chapter 2, verse 10 says, When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. We see these, these men, these same men, the, the wealthy ones, the influential ones, the powerful, important ones, take a knee before a toddler in his mother's arms and lay at his feet a small fortune. And do that because when the king comes to town, you get down on your knees. And it doesn't just stop there. The very next chapter, chapter 3, Jesus has grown into a man now. And we see John the Baptist, the one who had announced Jesus coming with the same message. He says it this way. Chapter 3, verse 2 says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who has spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Again, we see with John the Baptist, the one who is sent ahead of Jesus to announce his arrival, announce the coming of the king. We see him call us to ready our hearts for his coming. He uses the phrase, make straight paths for him. Because in that day, it would have been common if a dignitary or king or a ruler of some kind were coming to your city, he would send word, sometimes even months ahead of time, so you could prepare for his arrival. Which started with the very road leading into your town. You would go out and you would level all the high spots and you would raise up all the, the low spots and you would fill in the potholes and you would make sure when the king is coming, everything is ready. So to fix the roads, to level the high spots, to fill in the potholes, was to prepare the way for when the king came to your town. As I looked at this this week, I kind of got, uh, truthfully, on a kind of a rabbit trail of potholes, um, which led me to this very weird fact. Do you know that New Orleans is sinking? Uh, about two inches every year, to the extent that they might not even, uh, scientists expect that it won't even be above water within 80 years. But with that sinking comes difficult road situations. And I ran across this story, one man, Chris Granger, relayed kind of the struggle in his own neighborhood. He said, the sewage and water board came out to do some work in the front of my house a couple of years ago, and they dug a hole that went perpendicular to my street. They filled it with gravel, and one of the crews said, we'll be back to fill it in later. 
And weeks go by, and of course, they're not back. And the gravel is coming out of the hole, and uh, the hole is getting deeper and deeper. And he says, I started seeing hubcaps in my front yard as they would fly off the tires. And then I started seeing corner pieces of bumpers. And then one day, when I'm loading my car with my camera gear, a car was coming down the street, and they hit it. And their airbags go off, and they hit this puddle. He said the windows were open, and it was like a mushroom cloud of baby powder coming out of all of the windows of this minivan. And he concludes it with, so that's the kind of world we live in here. And so you can imagine his reaction to waking up one morning and seeing someone having created and placed an eight-foot traffic cone called King Cone in the pothole. This, this is not how you fix a pothole. This is not how you make straight paths. And it kind of got me wondering, so how do we? How do we make straight our paths? How do we get on our knees before our king? What does that look like? If we want to prepare our hearts and show honor to our king and take a knee before him and reverence, what does that look like? And we don't have treasures of gold and spices to lay at his feet. We don't have roads to patch. And as much as your mom probably wanted clean baseboards, I don't think Jesus really cares that much. But Jesus tells us what it looks like. He tells us exactly how we enter into his kingdom in the first sermon he ever preached. In fact, it's just a one-sentence sermon. Chapter 4, verse 12 says, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said to the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach. Here's his sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven has come near. And and coming near isn't coming soon as much as it is in front of you. Jesus is saying this nearness is not of time, but proximity. In other words, he's saying, your king has come to town. And the challenge that Jesus sets before us in response to his coming is the challenge and the call to repent. This is how we take a knee before our Lord and king. We've probably heard the the word repent before. You've probably heard it in, in this building or in church. And sometimes we think, you know, that just means kind of feeling bad about what I've done. But repent is a change in direction. To repent is to do a 180. In military terms, it's an about face. Repentance is a change in mind that leads to a change in allegiance, that leads to a change in action. The call that Jesus places before us isn't a call to casual observance, but a call to total allegiance in him. In other words, Jesus is calling us to deeper devotion to our king. I love the way another translation conveys this call. Uh, It's called the cotton patch version. He says, From then on, Jesus began spreading his idea, reshape your lives, for God's new order of the Spirit is confronting you. Are we willing to reshape our lives in light of our King's arrival? In light of our King's command? Because what Jesus is calling us to will actually cost us more than gold and frankincense and more, and will require more of us than just filling in some potholes and leveling some asphalt. 
Jesus isn't calling us to to lip service or empty gestures. He's calling us to a radically different way of life. A life that turns and swims upstream against the culture of the current that we live in. To live a life in submission to Him. And this kind of living sounds hard. And if you've lived this life for long, this Christian life, you know that at times it can be hard. But in light of this difficult command that Jesus gives us, there's one truth that I return to over and over again. You might have heard me say it before. But Jesus will never call us to do what he himself is not willing to do. And the reason I know this is because when so often the king comes to town, you get down on your knees. When our king came to town, he got down on his On the night before he would be crucified, his disciples are arguing of all things about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And in response, Jesus doesn't rage at them or put them in their place or kick them out. Instead, John tells us this, John 13, verse 3. says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus' response to his disciples grasping for power and position was to adopt a posture of the lowest of the low, to do the job typically reserved for a slave, to wash the feet of his disciples. Their dirty dusty, calloused, corned, cracked, and smelly feet. Jesus, the king of the universe, would take a knee before them and show them what real power looks like. When our king came to town, he got down on his knees. When Jesus would go beyond just acts of service, he would make the ultimate sacrifice. The king who would step down from his throne. The king who would live among his subjects the king who would lay down his heavenly crown for the one made of thorns that would be jammed upon his scalp. He would empty himself and become nothing. And that's what we take time to remember when we take communion. I'm going to have the guys that are going to be serving come up as I read to you from Philippians chapter 2 and reflect on this. And what Jesus has done, the king of the universe emptying himself to be like us. Philippians 2 says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus... Catch this, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, our King is no longer on his knees. Our King is on his throne, exalted on the throne of heaven because he was raised from the dead and defeated the grave. And as our king, Philippians 2 tells us that one day every knee will bow in submission to him. 
And so really there are two kind of choices placed before us. The first is that we can bow in submission now and live in the glory of his kingdom. Or we can bow when he returns under the crushing realization that we missed out. Jesus is the king whether we like it or not. Whether we acknowledge it or not. It made me think the last few years as we've had some pretty contentious political presidential elections, it's been in vogue after if your candidate didn't win to say, well, he's not my president. Of course, this is ultimately an empty saying because saying that doesn't negate the office that he holds in that building. But in much the same way, whether we acknowledge it or not, Jesus is king. To say not my king doesn't make him any less the king. And so as we embark on this series over the coming months, my primary encouragement to you is let us pay honor to our king. Let us take a knee in submission to him because of who he is and what he has done. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. And as we look at your rule and your reign in our world, your kingdom, your will done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray for your kingdom to come. We begin just by acknowledging our king. We begin by bending a knee to Jesus and honor and respect to him, not because he demands it as a ruthless tyrant, but because he deserves it as a merciful and loving Lord and Savior. God, I pray that as we go throughout this series that we would be drawn into a greater understanding of what it looks like for you to be active in our world, ruling and reigning with the authority that you wield. But that we would also grow more and more in love with our King, more and more devoted to Him. We would turn more and more allegiance over to Him as we take our hands off our lives and place it in His. God, we thank you for Jesus. And when so many other kings demand honor and respect, Jesus demonstrated it. What it looks like to take a knee in service and submission. And so God, as he is seated now at your right hand on his heavenly throne, we pray that we would also take a knee to him, giving our lives to him, and remembering what he has done for us in his death and his resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.